If you've got a Bible, uh, please open up to Matthew chapter 26 as we keep going through our journey in Matthew's Gospel. We've skipped ahead four chapters. Uh, We're going to come back to them later um, after Easter, but we're we're moving towards the end of Jesus' life. And as we walk towards Easter, I thought it'd be nice to come closer and closer to the the events. And we're going to just preach through the whole Easter story. And by Resurrection Sunday, we'll be at Matthew 28 and, and the resurrection like Henry read in the service today. So that'll be great. Matthew 26, verse 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast. Let there be an, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that you would bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In all great theatre, the opening scene is crucial. Uh, If you like a bit of drama, going to plays, maybe you go down to Riverside Theatre at Parramatta. Um, I remember studying Hamlet in high school. I I do like a little bit of Shakespeare, though I don't know much of it. But I did enjoy Hamlet because it was this brooding, kind of moody character, all these funny parts. But the beginning of Hamlet sets the scene so well. It has the guards on this spooky castle top. There's meant to be mist and the moonlight flowing. And they're talking about whether or not they, they, it was really true that they'd seen a ghost, uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father or, or some kind of spectre. And someone saying, oh, no, 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 it's not true, it's not true, and then something happens. You know, the, the, the silence goes forward and a spooky apparition appears a, across the stage and it's, it's the ghost of Hamlet's father, Claudius, who's just been killed. And, and the, the guards are freaking out. The guy who's best friends with Hamlet, he's freaking out. And then the scene ends. And it 
introduces the whole theme of Hamlet. It introduces the kind of spooky element. It introduces this idea of a dead king coming back to life, uh, this idea of, you know, revenge and everything like that. And it draws you in as a listener, as a watcher, I should say, as, as a spectator. You're drawn in, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to be next? And it's a motif that goes throughout the play. As Matthew's writing his gospel, and we come to Matthew 26, we're at the, in a sense, the opening scene of the final act. It's been going on a long time, Matthew's gospel, but now the whole narrative slows down and Matthew starts again almost in telling the story. And this is really where Matthew's been heading the entire time. Uh, Commentator and pastor James Montgomery Boyce says this about where we're up to. For 25 chapters, ever since the introduction of Jesus as the descendant of David in verse 1 of chapter 1, the story of Christ's life has been moving toward a powerful, gripping climax. The murder of the king followed by his resurrection. The story started slowly, but it's been building in intensity throughout the three-year ministry. And it has now reached the point where the final act of the drama is at hand. The king has come to Jerusalem for the final time. And the leaders of the people who hate him are plotting his arrest and execution. Grant Osborne says in his commentary, Here, the climax of the entire Bible and of God's plan of salvation occurs. This is a dramatic moment. This is the whole point is coming together right now. The climax of Genesis through to Matthew is happening. God's plan of salvation that began before time was began in the garden with Adam and Eve, with the fall, the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, all the way through the kings, the sacrificial system, all the prophets, all the exile, the return, the rebuilding of the temple the period between John the Baptist, it's all coming to this moment. God's eternal plan of salvation is about to be revealed how he is going to save people who deserve to go to hell and bring them into everlasting life. And chapters 26 to 28 detail that climactic moment, the climactic moment of all of human history. We cannot, as we come to this passage, overestimate the significance of what's recorded. Yes, COVID is a big deal. Yes, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a big deal. Going back, World War II, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, they all matter. But they pale in comparison to the drama that occurred in Jerusalem in about AD 30. They pale in comparison. Significant moments, yet in our history syllabus, the death of Christ doesn't even feature. But this moment is the moment of all human history. Without this moment, all human history is destined for judgment and hell. As we saw last week, our eternal future stands or falls on how we respond to this Jesus, this man. And this is, this, because, this is because of what occurs in these following chapters. 
But because we know the story so well, we know Easter, we've been here before, we may be tempted to gloss over it. We may be tempted to be like, I know this story. Yep, Easter, it's kind of like Christmas. You know, you, you hear it and it becomes a bit rote. But what I want us to do over these next number of weeks is to slow down long enough, pay attention to the details, enter into the drama and feel it so that we can be reminded afresh, changed afresh. Because when you actually study this section of Matthew's gospel, I agree with the commentator Donald Hagner. He says this, the passion narrative is a literary masterpiece. It's not just... You know, Matthew going, oh yeah, and this happened, and oh yeah, and that happened, and oh yeah, that happened, and he's just a stream of consciousness. This is put together in a specific way. It's pieced together. It's a work of art, like Shakespeare. Of course, it's Holy Scripture, superintended by the Holy Spirit, but it is a literary masterpiece. Each part is placed there for that reason and not here for that reason. And so as we come to this passage today, Matthew is setting up the drama. He's he's painting the picture for us in two interesting and powerful scenes. The chapters we skipped in chapter 22 to 25 was basically Jesus debating with the religious leaders. They come at him with a question. He answers, asks them a question. Then he goes at them. Chapter 23, we'll come to it. He just destroys them with a judgment. It pronounces a curse and a woe upon them. Chapters 24 to 25, he predicts the end of the world and and the fall and destruction of Jerusalem and tells everyone to get ready for his return even before he's even died. And then we come to verse 20, or chapter 26. And you saw in verses 1 to 5 how Matthew kind of puts these two scenes together to kind of set up the piece. In verses 1 to 2, We have Jesus gathering his disciples. He's finished his teaching now. It's all done. The sermons are gone. Now it's just Jesus and his disciples. And he's already predicting once more his impending death. So he paints this scene, scene one, Jesus predicting, Jesus predicting. We see how he's in control. Remember I said nothing happens to Jesus. Jesus isn't passive in this. He's in control of the whole narrative. He knows when he will die. He knows that in two days during the Passover weekend, that's when it's going to happen. He knows how he will die. He'll be delivered up to the elders and then to Pilate. He knows he's going to be crucified as a lowly slave and debauched criminal. And how does he know? Because he's not like us. (laughs) He's he's God-man. The Father has told him. They've planned it. He's predicting it. He's telling the disciples. That's one half of the the scene. Then in verses 3 to 5, Matthew paints the other half. The contrast, the priests and elders are gathered and they're plotting. Jesus is predicting, the elders are plotting. And, And we now move on from the Pharisees. Now we have the chief priests. These are the ones who in the Sanhedrin, they rule the temple. Are they the ones that have legitimate authority? Caiaphas, as we learn in this, he was high priest for 18 years. And then after him, there was about 40 high priests in a period of three years or something ridiculous like that. So he knew how to wield political power. He knew how to be in control. He was, you know, very, very powerful. And so they're gathering and they're like, we need to get rid of this guy. They think they're in control. 
You see in their language that, you know, they're going to, okay, let's, let's get him killed, and, but let's do it by stealth so we don't rile up the crowds, and let's not do it during the feast because, you know, there's like a million people potentially in Jerusalem at the time, and, and they all get a bit, you know, antsy and, you know, excited because they're wanting to liberate Israel from Rome, so don't take this popular prophet and kill him during the feast because that won't work. They think they're in control, but they're not. Jesus predicts the priest's plot, but unbeknownst to them, they're in fact planning the salvation of the world. The chief priests are planning their own obsolescence. They're about to become obsolete because as they seek to kill Jesus, they are about to make the final sacrifice and therefore priests are no longer needed. They're making the final and ultimate Passover lamb sacrifice and then there's no more Passover lambs anymore after this. So they're plotting, thinking they're in control, but actually they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction. Matthew paints this brilliant scene and the stage is set and now the passion narrative begins. And Matthew then puts this story, these two stories together. The story of this woman anointing Jesus and the story of Judas betraying Jesus. And it's a dramatic tension again. It's another painting of this scene so that we can see, and, and actually it's here to challenge us. And the challenge of this, these two stories put together, because they don't actually happen in chronological order, Matthew places them there particularly to ask us this question. What is Jesus worth to you? What is Jesus worth? And to answer that question, I want us to just walk through this passage in three points. Extravagant devotion, point one. Point two, calculated treachery. And point three, tying it all together, what is Jesus worth? So let's jump into the story and look at this idea of the worth and value of Jesus. Point one, extravagant devotion. Let me read verse six again. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. So he's giving us some clues. He's situating this story so that we know what's going on. But he doesn't give us all the details. I want us to jump into John for a moment just to John actually fleshes this out in a bit more detail so that we can see what's happening. John 12, 1 to 2. Six days before the Passover. Okay, so... When Jesus has finished the teaching, he's already rode into Jerusalem. That's already happened in Matthew's Gospel. But John tells us that actually six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Before he gets on the donkey, comes in where Lazarus was. If you know the story of Lazarus being resuscitated from the grave, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, you might remember her from Luke, Served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So it's a cool scene. This is a party before Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's in Simon the leper's house. Lazarus is there, who he was dead, is now alive. And Martha's there, who you know was busy with much serving. And there she is again, still hasn't learned, still serving. But maybe maybe it was good this time. They're having a feast. They're having a meal. Uh, and you know Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus. The disciples are there. Uh, And as we said, this actually happens before he goes in on the donkey. 
And so Matthew puts it here to bring out the dramatic tension and to make a point. Bethany is outside of Jerusalem, about two miles. And then this is what happens, verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster, why am I finding it hard to say, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. John fills in the detail a little bit more as to who this woman is. John 12, verse 3, Mary. Remember Martha serving much? Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. Jesus says to Mary, you have chosen the better portion. Well, Mary, again, verse 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's a a beautiful scene of devotion, extravagant devotion. She's taking very expensive perfume. We learn in Mark's gospel that it was 300 denarii, which is about a year's worth of wages, potentially a family heirloom. It would be, in our kind of mind, thinking sort of like a superannuation, you know, for for hand-to-mouth, you know, working day labourer to have a year's worth of salary in a bottle That's like your superannuation. And she takes it and she cracks the top of this clay vessel and pours it upon Jesus' head. And this image is that as he's lying down eating, this this beautiful perfume is flowing down his body and goes all the way down to his feet. And then she's so involved that she's then marinating his feet in this beautiful perfume. And I think in that time it would have made more sense and felt a bit beautiful. But for us, we're like, that's just a bit weird. If you come back to my house today and we're eating chicken and chips and you crack open the olive oil and pour it over my head and anoint me with oil, I'm going to be a bit frustrated at the very least. I'm not going to find it a very enjoyable experience. But in the ancient Near East, this was actually a practice that they used to do. It wasn't uncommon for someone to anoint the honoured guest with beautiful perfume and expensive ointment. Um, in fact, it's actually a practice found throughout the whole Old Testament, the practice of anointing. The very first king, Saul, was anointed by Samuel, poured oil over his head and he was anointed as king. And then when uh, Samuel goes to Jesse's house and they have a big banquet and Samuel's looking for the next king to replace Saul because Saul rejected the Lord, he has this big banquet and then the Lord says, I'm going to get you to anoint someone. And eventually he anoints David and that's Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. And throughout the Bible, various kings and various priests are anointed with oil. So it's a, it's a sign of blessing. I guess maybe in a dry culture, they didn't have sorbeline cream and, and poor, poor ointment. So to have oil was rich and beautiful and, and provided just that life and, um, you know, the smell of it too, because they didn't have showers. So <laughs> to have oily, nice, hydrating, smelly stuff would have been good. Don't anoint me today, please. <laughs> And so in this scene, we have a costly and beautiful description of Mary anointing Jesus and potentially even linking to the Old Testament practice of anointing kings. Perhaps Mary is even, we don't know, but perhaps she's even saying to the group, I think he's king. Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is a Hebrew word for Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word which means anointed one. This is the only moment other than when Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit that he is anointed. Oil is poured over him. He's the Christ, 
the promised one, the anointed one. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but it's, it's possible, it's likely. And so Matthew's painting this beautiful picture of costly devotion, extravagant devotion. And it's all reserved for Jesus. It's, it's because of her love for Jesus, her faith in Jesus, her respect of Jesus, her honour of Jesus. She pours it all out. So if you ask Mary, what is Jesus worth to you? She's like, everything. I'm all in. I love him. What's the response at the feast? Verse 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Oh, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, I say it like that. But it's not necessarily a wrong thought. 300 denarii, that's, you know, you could feed the disciples, they could have been fed off that, <laughs> they're poor. You could have fed many poor people in Jerusalem with that money. It's a bit of a waste to just pour it on someone's head and make them smell nice for a couple of days. They're thinking in kind of worldly economic terms, even in pragmatic terms, even in, oh, we could have done more ministry with that money, we've sort of wasted it on Jesus. John tells us actually that it was Judas who said those words. Uh, but Matthew doesn't put it in Judas's mouth. He, he owns it as all the disciples, himself being one of them. So perhaps they all thought the same thing. Look at what John says. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So you've got this scene, beautiful, extravagant devotion. You've got the disciples wrestling with this display, costly display, this beautiful display of honour. How does Jesus view the story? That's all important, isn't it? Verse 10 to 12, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? don't know, maybe they were, come on Mary, what are you doing? Or maybe their consternation was causing her to maybe regret what she'd done, we don't know. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. That's how Jesus interprets this. This is beautiful. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus knows in, two, in a short period of time, he is going to be crucified, as we saw at the beginning. He knows that he's going to be rushed into a grave where his body will not be honoured, where he will you know, go to decay for a number of days, and he, he knows, perhaps, that Mary knows what's about to happen. That Maybe she's listened to all these predictions that Jesus has made and actually believed them, whereas the disciples, it looks like they haven't actually believed Jesus when he said he's going to be crucified and die. And so Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing. She, she, she gets it. And my body is going to stink. I'm going to be bleeding and sweating. I'm going to have blood everywhere. When I die upon the cross for sins... You know, what happens when people die? They, they pass all that's in them. So when Jesus dies, there's going to be filth upon him. 
in him, through him. But they'll be intermingled with this beautiful nard perfume that has been over his body. And so Jesus interprets it as a beautiful, beautiful scent. Perhaps something he even smelt still upon the cross. And so then, to take it to the next level, he even says this, verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. So if you're left in any guessing as to whether or not costly and extravagant devotion is worthwhile, Jesus is saying, it is. And in Parramatta, in 2022, uh, I'm going to tell these people about Mary. And I want these people here, sitting right here, to know about Mary. And look at the confidence Jesus has. that He, he knows he's about to die, but he knows what's going to happen. Jesus didn't die and be like, I wonder if it'll work. I hope, you know. <laughs> when we planted the church, it's like, oh Lord, may it please work. I hope it does. And by God's grace, it has. But Jesus wasn't going to his death hoping that it would work, hoping that the gospel would fill the whole earth. Look at it now. Millions, if not billions of Christians around the world have heard this story. Now, Matthew leaves it unnamed, whereas John spills the beans and he gets her name out there. But I think Matthew probably leaves her unnamed because it gives us a chance for each one of us to kind of enter the story. It could be each one of you or I that did that. It doesn't have to be anyone special. I was down in Canberra uh, last week and I went to the Australian War Memorial Museum and it's a beautiful and moving place and we went into the tomb of the unknown soldier and it's this high, you know, really high, awesome you know, acoustics, actually. I, I, I sang the doxology in there. Dave was a bit embarrassed, but I was like, this is the moment. I was like, praise God. And it's praise. Anyway, but then there's this tomb in the middle, and there's, it's to the unknown soldier. And it's sort of representing that any one of us guys and any one of us ladies could have been that soldier who died in the war. And in a, in a sense, that's sort of what Jesus, of what Matthew is doing here. He's saying, this could be us. This could be us devoting beautiful devotion to Jesus. So, that's the extravagant devotion. That's the scene there. Now he wants to paint the contrast. Calculated treachery. Verse 14 to 16. Point two, calculated treachery. What is Jesus worth to Judas? Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The beautiful picture of extravagant devotion now cast aside with this costly, or calculating rather, treachery. The warmth of the love and the affection of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair to now the coldness of Judas. It's almost unimaginable, isn't it, when you, when you look at this. Note what Matthew tells us about him. Judas, one of the twelve. Three years with Jesus. Day in, day out, night. Every teaching, every meal, hanging out at the feet of Jesus, seeing it, seeing resurrected Lazarus. He's sitting there with a guy that was dead, that was best mates with Judas and uh, with Jesus, and likely they were friends, Lazarus and Judas. There's Lazarus at dinner, was dead, now alive. That's who Judas is. He was there. Went, Matthew says, he went. 
They didn't approach him. They didn't come to him and say, hey. He went to them. He knew. Unprovoked. He wasn't tempted or seduced. He went willingly. And look what he says. What will you give me? So mercenary. Looking to receive some benefaction, some costly, you know, he wants the treasure. He didn't want that money to be spilled out on the floor on Jesus' feet for whatever reason. John tells us it's greed. He loved to steal. And now he's like, well, I'm going to get my, I'm cashing in my check now. This guy's going to die. I want money now. What is Jesus worth to Judas? 30 pieces of silver. Probably about three months' pay. And those 30 pieces, if you trace that number of silver back into the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law in Exodus, it tells us that that's the price you'd pay to the owner of a slave if an ox had gored the slave and killed them. That was the price. So Judas was willing to sacrifice and substitute Jesus for the price of a slave. That was it. To put it in modern terms, personal terms, to Judas, Jesus is worth the price of a second-hand Kia Carnival. You've seen my Kia Carnival. (laughs) Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the preeminent one, is worth a crystal blue carnival. 2012. Terrible. And verse 16, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So now Judas is looking. He's got the money and now he's looking, all right, how am I going to make this happen? He's going to go to the Passover feast with Jesus. How can I make it happen? How am I going to do it? He's looking for a moment. So two scenes that Matthew paints, extravagant devotion, calculated uh, treachery, Two whole value systems on how they view Jesus. Inestimable worth versus a way of making a buck. And it draws down now to us with the question of point three, what is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth to you? Matthew's put these two stories together, not just to tell the story, but to reach into our lives and make us ask the very question. What is Jesus worth to you? Don't just listen to it as like a preacher. He's preaching. Uh, yeah, he's asking. It's oratory. He's saying these things. No, ask the question. What is Christ actually worth to me today? Let's examine it from two angles. The angle of Mary, the angle of Judas. Another way of asking the question, what would you anoint Jesus with? If Jesus were here, what would you anoint him with? What would, you, what would be your go-to? If you wanted to demonstrate to the Lord Jesus Christ your devotion to him, your love for him, what would you anoint him with? You know, when you go to a wedding or a party or you've got some event and you, you've got that gift dilemma. You've got the constraint of your budget, the reality of your love or lack thereof, and you're like, how much do I spend? <laughs> How much do we give? Or you're buying a group present and everyone's like, all right, we're going to put pitch in and buy this. And people are like, so how much are we pitching in? I had this happen recently for a mate. 
And um, one guy was like, yeah, maybe it was a wedding present. One of our close mates, and he was like, 50 bucks? And we were all like, oh, we were thinking a bit more than that. But I have the same struggle in my heart. It's like, how much, how much, do, how much do I love this person? How much am I willing to sacrifice to give to them? So now put yourself, say you're in the mall in Jerusalem. You want to anoint Jesus at the dinner. Which jar of perfume, perfume do you buy? There were cheaper options. I mean, it was common to anoint someone, but you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do a year's wages. You would, you would do something nice, but not too nice, right? Not too extravagant. You're at the mall, what would you buy? Do you go all in for Jesus? Would you go mid-range or the cheap stuff? Commentator William Barclay talks about this passage and says this, and I think this is really a great insight. This, this story, it shows us love's extravagance. The woman took the most precious thing that she had and poured it on Jesus. Love never calculates. Love never thinks how little it can decently give. Love's one desire is to give to the uttermost limits. And when it has given all it has to give, it still thinks the gift is too little. It's a beautiful picture. When you truly love someone or love a person, you can't give them enough. And when you go all out, you still think, oh, I wish I had more. I wish I could do better. And I wish my love was more like that love that he's describing. So often it's cold, so often it stops short, so often economics gets in the way, practicality gets in the way. I check myself. I don't want to have that level of extravagant devotion. But love never calculates. True devotion to Christ doesn't spend time thinking, what's the smallest bit I can give to get away with? What's the least amount I can do to still be a respectable Christian? Instead, when you truly apprehend who Christ is, your heart ought to, even if it can't practically live it out, ought to want to go all in, above and beyond, the lavish giving of time and money and energy and affections. Barclay goes on to say, we have not even begun to be Christian if we think of giving to Christ and to his church in terms of as little as we respectably Strong words. We have not even begun to be Christian. If we think of giving to Christ and to his church in terms of as little as we respectably can. Why is that? Because it's not about what everyone else thinks about how much you give to Christ. It's about you and him. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about everything. All of life. Our affections. Our, our time. Our energies. Our pursuits. Our career. Everything. If you don't have this connection to Christ, this love of Christ, this appreciation for Christ, where you're thinking, what else can I do, O oh Lord? You saved my life. I was going to hell. I deserve to go to hell. What else can I do for you, Lord? What else can I give? How else can I serve? How do you want me to live? If you're not thinking that and wrestling with that, maybe you haven't even begun to be a Christian. Perhaps you're playing a game, the, the game called church, 
where you come and, and you participate and you do things and because other people are doing things. But you don't relate to Christ. If he attended lunch, you probably wouldn't even talk to him, but potentially you, you're like, oh, he's cool, it's Jesus, but I've got my friends too and chicken and chips. <laughs> what is Jesus worth to you? Are you more like the disciples and far too often me thinking, what can I get away with? Rather than how much can I give? For Mary, she chose her best. She chose the best. The most expensive thing she had. The thing of greatest value. So let me ask you, is Jesus worth the best of your time? The best, the the most energetic and alive you feel. Is Jesus worth that moment? Or do you spend it elsewhere? Is Jesus worth the best of your energies? The best of your creativity? Or is he getting the leftovers? Is Jesus worth the best of your money? Or are you building treasures on earth? Is Jesus worth the best of your love? Or are you spending it horizontally, but rarely vertically? The best of your affection and devotion. When it comes to our worship of Jesus, Jesus teaches us that no act of worship and devotion is too full on or too costly. In fact, it's the opposite. We're often so half-hearted, so little in our devotion. But it's, it's at the foundation of being a follower of Jesus is actually costly devotion. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Give your life away. Give your time away. Give your creativity away. Give your energy away and you will find life. You will not lose it. The second angle to look at this question, what is Jesus worth to you, is the angle of Judas. And the question is this, what's your price? What's your price? The famous criminal drug lord Pablo Escobar said this, everyone has a price. The important thing is to find out what it is. He's talking there about bribing officials and police officers. But the principle is interesting. Judas had a price. He was willing to trade Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. He was all in for Jesus until he wasn't. And when he wasn't, Jesus was worth a crystal blue here carnival to him. Do you have a price? Would you trade Jesus in if it could get you something you prefer? And the sad reality is, is that at the mundane and everyday level, at times we all do trade him in. 
It's rarely monetary. No one comes to you and says, I'll give you $1,000 today if you just don't pray or worship Jesus. But instead, we trade in our devotion for career advancement, for a marriage prospect, for family connection and relationships. We trade it in for a bit of lust. We trade it in for social standing. And we think, Judas, how could you do it, Judas? But any time we intentionally sin and betray Jesus, are we not just the same as Judas? He was greedy. He satisfied his sin of greed by trading Jesus in. Anytime we intentionally sin and go after sin, are we not, am I not just like Judas in that moment? So let me ask you, is there any area of your life where you are trading Jesus in for 30 silver coins, a pittance, in comparison to the inestimable worth and glory of Jesus Christ? And this passage, this contrast is put here today to, to say, be, be like Mary. Give extravagantly to Jesus. It's beautiful in his sight. You can't give too much. You can't throw it away. It will not be wasted. The oil may be eaten up by the ground, but it will not be wasted by the Lord. And avoid the calculated treachery of, G, of Judas. And in order to do that, we can't just like wrestle it in. In order to do that, we need to see the value and worth of Jesus for ourselves. Our heart needs to be drawn in to realize, oh yes, he's worth it. He is worth that perfume, that oil, that money, that time, that energy, that creativity. Peter, who was there, who saw it all happen, who ended up denying Jesus, but then confessed his sin. And that's the one thing Judas didn't do. Judas didn't confess his sin and repent and therefore suffered eternal punishment. But if you confess your sins, and even if you are like Judas, you can be forgiven. Peter, who did deny Christ, traded Jesus in for social standing to protect his own life, later came back to Jesus, was restored, said this about Jesus. He was refreshed in his view of the value of Jesus. 1 Peter 1.18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, 30 pieces of silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We need to see the preciousness of the Passover lamb if we're ever going to give extravagantly. And if we confuse ourselves and distract ourselves and get busy with a million other things but don't focus on the preciousness of the blood of Christ, will never experience the joy that Mary had of giving it all away, of going all in and devoting our costly things to Christ. Peter, earlier in his letter, explains what it's like to truly value Jesus as precious. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what happens when we start to see Jesus as precious like Mary do, did. We have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When people come here on a Sunday morning, they should experience a people that apprehend the worth of Jesus Christ so that when we sing, it sounds different. When we talk, it feels different. When you meet someone, it feels different. Now, we're sinners, we're, we struggle, all that. But overall, it should feel different because there should be an inexpressible nature to our gathering. 
Like, this is so good, I can't believe it. And so respond in that way. (laughs) Give yourself over emotionally and physically with your money and your time and energy. Be like Mary and receive life. So what is Jesus really worth to you? And do you have a price? Matthew has set the stage. He's put these two scenes before us. And he's asking us to see the preciousness of Christ and to enjoy costly sacrifice and devotion in response to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask for my own soul and our souls, would you help each and every one of us to see how great you are and how great your son is so that we would be willing to part with all that we have and all that we do in a costly way like Mary. May we be characterized by extravagant devotion. And Lord, we want to confess how we can be like Judas trading you in Trading you in and trading you in, being bought out by the world, being bought out by our sinful desires. And Lord, we confess and we repent. And we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sins and ransoms us from the futile things of this world and brings us into eternal salvation. And we trust in him, knowing that even though our hearts may be cold at times and even though we lack in our devotion, it's filled up in Christ Jesus and he has paid it all. And so we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And would you help us to have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Amen.